purpose here is to talk about the issues. There are lots, as, uh, as, as Sean just uh, gave, you a, gave you a taste. Uh, there is a lot of complexity. What I'd like us to be able to do here is to debate some of the issues, to at least address some of the issues. There are lots of them. I want you to, walk, uh, to, to, to leave this session uh, with the sense that there are some complicated issues that might be difficult to resolve. Maybe it would make sense to take them off the table. Maybe it would make sense to compromise in some other way. Um, I would like you to have an understanding of some of the major offensive and defensive interests of the US side, uh, the European side, um, and uh, get a sense of where things stand going into the TTIP uh, round of next week. So a couple of years ago, a paper came out by, uh, published by the Atlantic Council and Bertelsmann, which I've always liked because it identified about 28 or so issues that are on the table. And they, uh, they, they produced the, uh, the results of a survey where they asked trade experts on both sides of the Atlantic whether which issues are very complicated, the most complicated to resolve, and which are the most important. And they plotted it. You know, they have an XY axis, axis axes. Uh, and so the most difficult to achieve and most important to a successful outcome were up in the top right quadrant. Um, but anyway, they, they, we talked about, they talked about all the, the, the various issues. So I would like to get into some of them here. Obviously, trade agreements deal with tariff reduction. So that's on the table. Agricultural protection, GMOs, um, uh, cyto and phytosanitary measures, which are pretty prominent. We've talked about regulatory coherence a little bit. We might get into that here. We have a whole uh, panel devoted to that later. Labor and environmental standards, um, uh, intellectual property protection, financial services, data protection, energy export liberalizations. There, there are a lot of issues. Um, let me also note that there's a slight programming change you may have noticed. Uh, Iana Dreyer was supposed to be with us. Uh, she's coming later. She uh, had some logistical issues getting uh, across the Atlantic. Um, so Phil Levy, who's also on another panel, uh, volunteered to, to help us out. So uh, thank you, Phil. So the way I want to proceed is to, like, I want to ask a question. I have 12 questions here. Uh, but I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to direct it to one of the panelists. He or she can start with an answer, and then others can can chime in. And when we've sort of exhausted or, you know, when it's time to move on, I'll ask, ask the next question. So uh, the first question I have is, is, is for Frederick, Frederick Erickson. And by the way, all of their bios are, are in your packets. Um, but really quickly, Frederick Erickson from ESIPE in Brussels. Uh, he'll leave you from the Chicago Council of Global Affairs. Um, Celeste Drake from the AFL-CIO. Marjorie Chorlins from the Chamber of Commerce. Axel Berger from the German Development Institute. Susan Aronson from George Washington University. So let me start, Frederick, with a question for you. What, what do you consider uh, the most important uh, issues to a successful outcome for, T, uh, for the TTIP? Uh, and, and what do you consider to be the most difficult to solve? Well, I, I, I think it's actually the same issue. And, and Sean drew the attention to it already in his talk. And of course, it's that the United States could become the 29th member of the European Union. That's the main net benefit that is going to come out from this. Uh, and if you want to show your increasing Europeanness, you should take longer holidays, you know, build up this European social model, um, which of course is desperately liked here uh, at KJ Institute. And please don't take away the illusion that at least our green cars are far more environmental than yours are. Um, so I think that's, that's sort of ambition we're going to have for, uh, for what we're going to do with TTIP. No, um, let me 
just say a couple of words on, on that issue, Dan, from the viewpoint of thinking perhaps through the economics and the political economy of it all. Um, I'm not sort of desperately happy with this obsession that a lot of people have about um, estimating the potential gains and losses of different trade agreements, especially by using fairly standard plain vanilla models that we know aren't really capturing um, um, some of the key benefits, benefits that come from trade. Um, I'm, I'm sort of complicit to uh, uh, um, uh, that myself since I've, 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 I've authored these studies with um, some regularity. But uh, I think the TTIP itself has to be put in this broader context. And that context is largely that we are seeing an end to 25 years of globalization as we knew it, uh, an end to the idea that constant... Uh, expansion of the principles of economic liberalism is going to power Western economies, that are going to deregulate economies at home, and that that sort of deregulation is going to have very strong effects on uh, what happens externally between countries. Um, I have for, uh, uh, for uh, a book that has come out uh, in a while uh, been sketching sort of a, a, a different scenario that we're seeing right now, which is that we move from sort of past 20 years of corporate globalism, given the fact that globalization was so heavy, powered by uh, big and global corporations and their uh, trade linkages uh, across the world. Um, so we're moving from that into a period uh, which I think is going to be more characterized by global corporatism, in the sense that we're seeing uh, a revival for uh, pretty old ideas about linkages between business and government. Uh, we're seeing a revival for uh, discriminatory and sometimes protective views of regulation. Um, uh, and that can manifest itself in everything from sort of uh, skepticism towards different mergers and acquisitions deal. Uh, for instance, Pfizer bidding for AstraZeneca or GE uh, bidding for... Uh, 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 for a French company, um, um, uh, I can't remember the name out right now, but uh, Alstom, exactly, and and the sort of the, the how how the politics around these deals came to uh, be uh, very sensitive and very controversial. Uh, we're seeing in today's Financial Times to uh, plug uh, Sean's newspaper an interview with uh, the CEO of Barclays Bank who is making the case for the build-up of a global, uh, a European champion in investment banking because he feels that American investment banks are getting uh, too competitive. That's the sort of, of, of all-type government interference in the economy that we're seeing, and it's going to sort of uh, uh, gush companies and governments to uh, become much closer, sometimes leading to very crony type of relations. That's the, glo the context that I see for TTIP. Uh, which, is, which sort of translates itself into uh, a new type of scenario for global trade where trade is going to grow far more slowly in future than it did in the past 25 years. We've already seen this in the trade statistics. We're going to see reorientation of the structures of trade, uh, partly because uh, Asia uh, emerging markets have uh, developed to that point in the economy where, where they begin to integrate much more, more regionally than they do globally. So you see strong agglomeration effects coming in the Asian region, which is sort of taking away a lot of the, uh, a lot of the benefits that the American economy and the European economy could, uh, could thrive on uh, for the past 20 years. I, I, yeah. I just wanted to pick up on the, on the point that you made earlier about the, 
the United States becoming the 29th uh, European state. Is, does anybody else on the panel sort of share that view that uh, the TTIP is uh, the completion of Columbus's uh, conquest of North America? <laughs> are, are, are there other perspectives on, on these issues? What are the, what are the big issues? What are the, what, are, what are the stumbling blocks? Good morning. If I may add to Frederick's excellent remarks, I see it a little bit differently. I see it as not only... Uh, well, I, I see it as really not being about trade, but rather about governance, not only a competition of governance models among U.S. and EU countries, but also between a Western model and a Chinese model, or a Western model and perhaps an Asian model. Um, and I, I make that distinction because I think they're not the same. But um, it seems to me that when we're talking about new issues, such as regulatory coherence and new sectors, such as information flows, that's really much more than trade. And it's, um, to me, it is about governance. When the United States uh, moves from focusing on specific human rights, such as labor rights, to a broader conception of including human rights, we've learned something from the European model. So it seems to me TTIP could set, you know, if you buy some of the things that policymakers have said about it in terms of setting, creating 21st century trade agreements and setting gold standards and building blocks, I think those uh, metaphors are useful and also a little bit scary, but I think we need to be honest about what this really is. Any other thoughts? Just to jump in there, I mean, I'll, I'll, I don't buy many of these metaphors myself. I think we are, what we're looking at is actually pretty standard type of free trade agreement negotiations between, uh, I mean, that the end of it, that the result of it is going to be a pretty standard type of free trade uh, agreement uh, that we've seen uh, uh, in, in the past years, topped up with uh, infusions here and there that hopefully can at least... Uh, at least uh, broach some new uh, uh, ground in terms of dealing with more thorny type of regulatory issues, but the sort of the 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 idea that has been at least initially sold to the public about sort of a 21st century agreement about you know creating a uh, a single market uh, across the across the Atlantic, I, I simply don't think uh, this is going to happen. And that just leads me to my sort of conclusion for what I was going to say, which is that. I think this is an agreement at, that, at least in Europe, is going to be sort of won or lost on its capacity to generate more growth, uh, more jobs. Uh, that's that's the politics of it. If if you're going to end up in an agreement that uh, has only small benefits uh, to that quest, then I think you're going to see all the other thorny problems and perhaps controversial issues are going to magnify. They're going to become far more bigger. I mean, if it's sort of chlorinated chicken or, or what have you. Um, so if then, if you want to go for sort of the big, uh, the big net benefits, you need to sort of run with the stream of what you've seen from a lot of the estimates that come on potential growth. You need to go into those sectors that can deliver huge scale benefits uh, by taking away tariffs and taking away perhaps some new type of, of, of trade restrictions that are there. You need to think about services, data, uh, and how you can sort of uh, uh, use the trade agreement itself to throw some friction into uh, uh, global trade policy in the sense that you, you really want an agreement here 
which can, uh, at least for the future, divert trade in the sense that you, you push countries like China, India, Brazil, and other large economies in the world to become far more favorable to more of a Western type of model of these issues. Um, so if you, if, you, if you find that sort of combination, it is going to be a fairly good agreement, but I don't think we're going to have higher hopes for going beyond that. You, you just alluded a little bit to the, the geopolitics, which, uh, which Sean spoke of. Phil, what, what do you make of the geopolitical arguments for, for the agreement? How important is it relative to the economics, which Frederick just art, uh, was articulating about? Is it about security, or is it about writing the rules of trade uh, uh, before China and India and Brazil do, and is that important? Well, I, I think it's both, both the economics and the geopolitics, and I think it, um, I'm going to take the bait a little bit on the 29th, uh, 29th <laughs> because I think that links into this with the geopolitics. I think mm -hmm. one of the things that we've seen, and we saw this in TPP and we're seeing this in TTIP, that if you want to have sort of success in tackling a difficult trade agreement, you can either make progress on very thorny issues or you can expand. And TPP did that for quite a while. It was supposed to conclude in November 2011 um, when the U.S. was hosting APEC. It didn't. So how do you show success? Bring in Mexico, bring in Canada, bring in Japan. Now you know we're successful because we're getting bigger. If you look at Europe, they've, of course, been having their own debates with um, the North versus the South and some of the Eurozone issues. As Sean noted, one of the major elections is what, is what will the British decide their role in Europe is to be. One way of sort of strengthening is expand, get involved in something bigger, um, not perhaps so far as actually bringing the United States in as a member, but it looks that way a little bit. It's, it's, a pro it's an expansion project. It's a tightening of ties. The problem that we see in all of these instances is that brings its own complexities. You know, on, on TPP, yes, it's nice that Japan is there, but now we've got a few new difficult negotiating issues, and that's what we have in, the, in TTIP as well. But I think when you ask about the geopolitics of this, there is, geopolitically, it's important to have a strong Europe. You know, for a, and we'll talk about this more this afternoon, I understand, but you know, to, for a whole range of issues and challenges, you want to have a, a strengthening, and the thought is, this is the kind of thing that can bolster. As Frederick said, you know, having some growth, having more jobs would cure many of Europe's ills. That would make everyone feel better about, you know, not just whatever agreement you reach, but then the union itself. So it, it can then serve as a, a sort of bolstering that way. But I think that was a lot of what was behind it because there was no shortage of venues for the U.S. and Europe to address economic matters. I mean, they, they've, and that's part of what the challenge of TTIP is, is they've been addressing these things all along. You had eight rounds of GATT negotiations. You have the transatlantic, what is it, economic cooperation uh, or economic council, where they were doing bilaterals. So if you wanted to tackle coronated chicken, there, was, there were opportunities. Um, doing it in this way with a big agreement, I think, is largely to, to sort of reinforce not only is, is sort of Europe intact, but then this bond um, between the U.S. and Europe, which obviously shaken through through a number of events over the last decade or two, um, that, that you sort of advertise that that's stronger, which is great so long as it works. Good points. Yeah. Celeste? Um, I, I think we're missing the point a little bit here in that there's not that much room to grow through a traditional trade agreement. You know, through all the rounds of GATT, through the WTO, through the fact that the U.S. and the EU have pretty low barriers facing each other, whether it's tariffs, whether it's regulatory barriers. And if the idea of the TTIP is simply we're going to achieve 
astronomical growth and grow out of austerity and grow out of the Great Recession because we're going to get rid of the barrier against chlorinated chicken or hormone beef, that just isn't really borne out by the data. I mean, the data show even in the very best case scenario, the growth that you're going to achieve is a little more than a rounding error. So that doesn't appear to us to be enough of an advantage of the TTIP to really live with a lot of these other things that working people are pretty concerned about. And with the TTIP agreement, it's not really, oh, we're going to move to London because that's a great offshoring platform to get back to the United States. But it is a lot of these questions about ISDS, about who's going to have the final say over regulations, over how we're going to structure our economy. And if this really is a new form of global corporatism, um, I think working people are very concerned that there's going to be even more corporate power in the new form of of globalism because it was really not advantageous to working people under its current guise. Doesn't doesn't it depend on what the rules are and and how we uh, where we liberalize what the terms are? I mean, you I've spoken uh, I've questioned global governance agreements as opposed to trade agreements. Susan mentioned mentioned it as well. But what is there a good agreement? Can regulatory harmonization actually? spawn great savings for business that can be passed on in the form of new investment to create jobs and, uh, and, and lower prices and things like that? Absolutely. And, and I think there, there are two main questions there. One is the transparency with, with, with which it's negotiated. If working people and other members of civil society are locked out of the room, but everyone knows the big you know, corporate lobbyists are maybe not in the room but have the best access to the negotiators and the most influence over the rules that are written, those rules are not going to be written in a way that favors workers. And secondly, um, businesses achieving more efficiencies is terrific in a vacuum, but it cannot be argued based on current economic models that that's automatically going to be shared with workers. What we see, and not just in the United States, but in the UK and Germany and Mexico and South Korea, that is that workers are getting a smaller and smaller share of national income. And particularly as productivity goes up, workers' incomes are not rising. And so this is problematic. And if the rules don't address that kind of concern, that workers can prosper as the companies prosper, then you're going to see continuing skepticism and doubt about the TTIP, as you saw in Germany on Saturday. I just wanted to ask a question to follow up on that. You, you, the sort of vivid idea of are workers locked out of the room, you currently have mechanisms like labor advisory councils to USTR I know that from time to time the Obama administration speaks with organized labor. Do you feel that there's, there's not useful com that communication, that the, the current model doesn't work to give workers a say? Uh, it's not really about communication so much as about influence and balance of power. Certainly there are labors of amongst the 600 or so advisors. Um, about 30 of them represent labor. So just numerically, you don't have a fair representation in regards to the number of workers in America versus the number of businesses in America. But more important than the numerical representation is the impact, the influence, and the effect. And certainly the Obama administration has a very open door policy. Uh, we present issues, we have meetings, they take our phone calls. But in terms of our proposals translating into what's put down on the negotiating table and at least trying for the things that we're asking for, we don't see it. Did you, did you have something, Frederick? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let me just sort of contest that idea a little bit. I mean, I'll, I'll globalization trade deals deliver benefits for the economy when they expose economies to more competition. Um, that's the main driver of, of gains from, from, from global trade and for, from um, trade agreements. The problem we've had for the past 25 years is that we haven't seen any sort of trade agreement that's been able to push that competition much, which is why, barring the spurt in the 1990s here in America and in Europe when productivity growth was actually accelerating again, we had more investment going into the economy where we had a, sort of a big boost in trade volumes. Uh, at that point, you saw take-home pay for workers, you know, doesn't matter where where they worked and how they worked, salaries were going up. Ever since then, we've been on a declining uh, trend for productivity, and as a consequence, uh, uh, pay hasn't increased that much. Uh, but the functional income distribution between labor and capital is basically stagnant, or it's 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 been flat, you know, bearing a bit volatility for 30, 40 years. It's not that labor itself is is. Uh, taking taking a hit, and that capital is sort of feasting on the carcasses of labor. What we're seeing is you have growing income inequality, because skills are uh, rewarded more than than other types of skills in in the modern economy. Which means that blue collar workers have have not seen pay gone up so much as in the past. But in order to shift into a different type of economy that can expose economies of a different type of globalization that can expose more economies to more competition and to transmit uh, new technology and innovation uh, at a faster pace, uh, then we need to begin uh, to return to, uh, uh, to trade agreements again and to design trade agreements that have the capacity to achieve that. Celeste, do you, do you want to offer anything? Sure. I mean, uh, the... The data that we're looking at is from the, the Federal Reserve Bank, and it, it does say that labor shares of income is down in comparison to the past. So, so we perhaps are maybe looking at, at different data. But I also think, you know, you talked about the standard economic models for trade agreements not accounting for everything. And part of what they're not accounting for is the movement of capital. So it's not just that U.S. producers are being outcompeted by an, an import sector. It's that whole factories are shutting down and moving and companies are deciding we're going to produce overseas where it's cheaper and export back to the United States. And that's quite different than the traditional model that we're both making wine and whoever's better at it should be the one that exports it. You know, not only that, but we've also seen a concentration of capital since this era of trade agreements, more mergers, more acquisitions, less competition. So if we're talking about becoming more efficient and having more competition, we've got to look at the effect of trade agreements on that concentration and what that does not only to consumers but to workers who are trying to sell their labor in the marketplace. I think, I think Susan wants to chime in, and then I'd like to ask Marjorie about business's perspective. We're talking about labor a lot here. So it seems like we're talking about three different things that are clearly related, right? One issue is um, what's happened to the share of labor in terms of globalization, and is are trade agreements the proper place to address that problem given labor's declining influence? So that's thing one. And I don't know where we all stand on that. It would be interesting to see. The second thing is does labor have influence? And I would actually argue um, labor has tons of it's, it's seen 
It's certainly heard if you look at the labor rights provisions as they've evolved over time. Um, certainly Congress has to some extent tried to meet them, as has various administrations. So the question is, why is that not working to help labor? And again, you come back to the first question. And then the third issue is process, right? How do we negotiate a trade agreement? Who's in the room? Is the process considered transparent and accountable? Which seems to me an issue we should talk about at another time, but clearly is I think a very important issue because it's an issue about trust and governance. And if governance agreements, as I call them, are, are becoming ever more influential and ever larger with more countries and more sectors, how we do it is important as what we include in there. I'll shut up now. Uh, Marjorie, I'd like to ask you about business and how focused is the chamber and business on, on the TTIP? And, what types of problems and issues can TTIP resolve for, for U.S. business and U.S. business here as exporters and U.S. multinationals in Europe? Uh, thanks, Dan, very much, and thanks to Cato for organizing this. I did rib down a little bit about the fact that we're having this uh, very interesting conference on a, on a federal holiday, um, but clearly enough people are interested in the topic that the room is nearly full. So. Uh, kudos to you for uh, bucking the trend and going ahead and having us all here uh, first thing in the morning. Um, uh, let me start by asking how many people in the room start from the premise that TTIP is or can be a good thing? Show of hands. Cool. And how many of you start from the premise that under no possible circumstances could it be a good thing? <laughs> all right. There's one honest guy in the back there. Come join the panel. <laughs> so, um, golly, where to begin? Look, the chamber has been a long time. First off, you know, let's, let's back up and realize that the chamber, yes, it represents a lot of big businesses, but we also, 95% of our members actually are small and medium-sized enterprises. So the notion, for starters, that the chamber is only about representing big business is a bit um, um, a bit disconnected from from the reality of our membership. Um, uh, business is is painted as um, I don't want to say the devil, but business is painted negatively in this conversation about TTIP. And the practical reality is that when you're talking about negotiating trade agreements, why are we negotiating trade agreements? We're talking about trying to liberalize the free flow of goods, of trade in goods and services and investment flows and, and agriculture wherever we can. Um, and by definition, uh, business has a stake and, and a fundamental role in um, why these negotiations are happening. Um, Workers have a fundamental role in them as well because they're employed by business. So this notion somehow that there is a dichotomy between what business wants and what is what is uh, in the interest of workers and consumers, uh, it strikes me as a, it's an unfortunate dichotomy. I think, frankly, what you see happening in Europe right now in terms of the uh, massive, de massive demonstrations. It wasn't just in Berlin this weekend, but in Amsterdam as well. I see Job sitting there. I was in The Hague last week, and, uh, and I can tell you that Dutch officials are growing increasingly concerned about the trends in their country as well. Um, I think the debate that you see, and I'll come back to your question 
okay. down in just a second. Uh, the debate that you see going on in Europe is much larger than what, what may or may not be included in this particular negotiation. Uh, it's a much more fundamental conversation about the role of business in society. Uh, and frankly, it's a much more intensive uh, dialogue that's happening in Europe right now. Um, I think that I, in some respects, at some point, we'll get around to having that conversation. I think now the TPP is, the negotiations have concluded, um, we'll start to see more of that conversation. Look, the Chamber has been an advocate for these negotiations even before the negotiations were negotiations. Uh, we began in, I think, 2010, 2011 with our friends at, um, uh, at some of the... Um, um, uh, some of the think tanks uh, in Europe to look at the potential benefits deriving from a comprehensive agreement, initially looking at just the benefits of tariff reduction. Uh, and from there, the conversation grew to one about what could be the benefits extending beyond, uh, beyond tariff reductions. The notion being, quite frankly, that uh, in the absence of or the relative uh, uh, paucity of uh, monetary and fiscal options available to promote jobs and growth, that trade liberalization might in fact, uh, should in fact be part of the solution. So uh, we've been advocating for this for a long time because we do see the opportunity for greater growth um, uh, in trade and in investment flows. Practical reality is, as many of you know, uh, because we're talking about, in many instances, multilateral, or sorry, multinational corporations, uh, much of the trade that goes on between the U.S. and Europe is intra-company trade. Uh, something like 40% of the trade that goes on across the Atlantic is intra-company trade, which means the companies are paying duties twice uh, for goods flowing back and forth. I'm sorry, but that just creates unnecessary costs in the, um, uh, in the, um, in the economy. Uh, I do think when it comes to regulatory cooperation, uh, people talk about coherence. I'm talking about cooperation and coherence. Um, our members do see significant opportunities there. You have to stop and ask yourself why. If um, uh, European and American air safety uh, agencies can um, deem airworthy an Airbus in Europe and allow that to be flown here in the U.S., and have a Boeing aircraft deemed airworthy by the FAA and therefore flown without being retested in Europe, why is it, if we can do that, we have to have, why is it that, I, I don't know if it's Mattel, I think it's Mattel, forgive me if I'm wrong about that, why do they have to make two different versions of a baby rattle? Because the standard in Europe and the US is different on the level of decibels that the rattle can make next to the baby's ear. Marjorie, can, can I interrupt? I, the, uh, this issue is a big issue, and it's identified as the source of the greatest gains. And the European left likes to talk about it as a you know, race to the bottom to U.S. standards. Uh, and the U.S. right likes to talk about global governance and acceding to these uh, ridiculously economy uh, squashing standards. Clearly, there's a middle ground. You identified rattles. It just seemed to me all along that business should do a better job getting out in front and coming up with uh, example after example of, after example of products where two sets of standards or regu regu regulatory schemes need to be complied with uh, that achieve the exact same safety or environmental or labor protection goal, whatever it is. Um, are you guys compiling a list? 
Well, in fact, we are. It's interesting that you asked that question. Look, um, there is no doubt about it. Uh, especially in Europe, business hasn't done enough to articulate the benefits of this of this of these negotiations. Um, in the U.S., I would say we're doing a better job, but we're doing it in a in a uh, in an environment where nobody's really listening yet. Let's face it: the uh, level, the attention span of the American public is fairly limited. Uh, and to the extent people are thinking about trade right now, if they're thinking about it at all, they're thinking about TPP. And I think that the, uh, the conversations that we're going to be having about trade over the next number of months as it relates, as we saw in, over the summer with TPA being, in effect, a referendum on TPP, and that we will now have going forward with TPP is a different set of circumstances because the relationship between the U.S. and the Asian countries uh, with whom TPP has been negotiated is fundamentally different than the relationship between the U.S. and Europe. Now, should the business community be doing a better job here? You bet. Um, do we need to get more information out there? You bet. Um, I'm not spending enough of my day, and in fact, this is my day job, um, trying to make the case for why uh, improvements in regulatory cooperation, whether it's sectoral uh, or whether it's in terms of a broad framework for dialogue, is important. Um, I need to do a better job of explaining why you do need an effective investor-state dispute settlement mechanism in an agreement where the, there is an I in the name of these negotiations. The I is for investment. Um, and where investment plays such a significant, in fact, an overwhelming role in the bilateral relationship. Yes, I do think that there is more that business should be doing. I think it's also more difficult in some respects to make the argument, uh, if you will, a sort of uh, straightforward um, business argument for why this agreement is needed when you're um, uh, faced with what I would describe as more fundamentally emotional arguments. It's easier to, to um, raise people's concerns about things like, I'm sorry, I have to come back to a chlorinated chicken or race to the bottom on regulation or uh, 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 lack, of, lack of transparency, a number of very fundamental concerns that derive, I think, from something that extends far beyond really what is the TTIP negotiation, has much more to do with the basic role uh, of business and society. Thanks, Marjorie. You, you, you touched upon uh, one of the hot button issues. Sean mentioned IFDS. That's an issue that uh, we at Cato and the Chamber don't, don't really see eye to eye on. Uh, Axel has uh, commented quite a bit about it, written, written a lot about it. Axel, would you? maybe share with the audience your perspective on ISDS, why it's problematic, what you think of Cecilia Malmstrom's recent uh, proposal for the permanent court. Uh, share your thoughts. I think a lot of people here have thoughts about that, so this could be a good, a good debate. Sure, yeah. Thanks very much, first of all, for the invitation. It's, uh, it's a great uh, conference. Now, investor state dispute settlement, and that's the topic, uh, if I'm looking at it from a German perspective which is in the center of the debate. Um, Investor-state dispute settlement procedures or mechanisms are part of most of international investment agreements, and there are um, more than 3,000 of these agreements. So essentially, it's about foreign investors have the right to bring claims against foreign states, right? And that's very, a very unusual thing in terms of international law, because if you think about the WTO, the World Trade Organization, only states have the right to sue other states. So that's a very unusual 
a thing in, in international law. Of course, there are many issues and many, uh, many uh, criticisms you, you, can, you can have with regard to ISDS, just to mention some. Only big and foreign companies uh, can bring those claims, so it's not, not really an instrument that uh, uh, small and medium-sized enterprises can use. It's not an instrument that national investors can use. Um, there's a question of the impartiality of the arbitrators. I mean, there are arguments that arbitrators are, um, have been counselors before, and so there's this whole question of impartiality. Um, the, the big issue is also that the decision of these arbitral tribunals are based on very vague concepts and very vague provisions like fair and equitable treatment. Um, our colleague Simon Lester has wrote about that. And um, just to mention last point, um, our calculations show that um, strong treaties, strong investment treaties, those that include ISDS provisions, do not have an additional positive effect on FDI. So there's a big question mark. Uh, in terms of effectiveness and impact. Now, with regard to the um, proposal um, by, um, by the Commission, by DG Trade, I think it's an intriguing proposal, uh, no doubt about that. Um, Sean Donnan talked about, about it. I mean, there's an appointment of permanent judges, there's an appeals mechanism which is missing um, so far, there's increased transparency, and so on and so on. Um, so although I think it's an intriguing um, uh, concept, intriguing proposal, I think it, it's missing the fundamental question. Why do you need a, an additional um, layer, if you want, of international law in a free trade agreement which is negotiated by two countries with rather mature domestic legal systems? So my proposal was just, just leave it out, right? You, it's, it's perfectly... Uh, possible to imagine a free trade agreement, an in investment agreement between two industrial countries without ISDS. You can focus on uh, liberalizing uh, market access for foreign investors. You can also think about um, enforcement of protection standards in domestic uh, legal settings. So that, that would be my idea. And, um, but of course, another question we should think about it is, I mean, in case of that there will be no ISDS in TTIP, what happens... Uh, uh, will, will the European Commission take this proposal up in other FTA or in investment treaty negotiations um, with the likes of Vietnam, China, uh, Japan, and other developing countries? So that, that's one of the big questions, and also that's one of the big questions when it comes to, a, uh, to the re reform of the international investment regime. So what kind of impact will this proposal by the European Commission have beyond TTIP? Anybody have a Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think there are two sort of, you can have two perspectives on this one, a constitutional perspective and more sort of a, a pragmatic uh, political economy view where you're trying to figure out exactly what was the question to which the answer was ISDS. From a constitutional point of view, I, I mean, I think it's perfectly obvious. Uh, it's a system which doesn't conform to basic constitutional principles, and there's actually a very easy way to solve this, which is for Europe, which we have been arguing for, is basically to allow uh, uh, complainants, whether they are foreigners or nationals, to reference international agreements when they go to court. Period. Uh, uh, sadly, uh, there are a lot of pe people arguing against that, uh, 
both on on sort of on the part of European governments who simply don't want to have international agreements to become uh, uh, part of of sort of their legal and regulatory fabric in that way. They want to have the opportunities to sort of avoid uh, having laws to have consequences for them or international agreements to have consequences. Um, a lot of the people that have been arguing against ISTS don't like this either because what they really would like to get away from is the fact that international agreements should have consequences, even legal consequences. Uh, so that's that, that's a sort of. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to solve that problem if we if we really would like to sort of make the system more uh, to conform to basic constitutional principles. Now let's go to the much more difficult issue, which is about the political economy and to understand why did these sort of agreements emerge? Uh, why didn't they conform to basic constitutional principles to start with? Uh, and what what's the role that they have played in the broader? Uh, landscape of various types of international agreements, trade, investment, and many other issues that have been uh, uh, negotiated in the past 30, 40 years? Well, the simple answer is that ISDS is a sort of safety uh, valve for a host of different type of agreements where uh, it has allowed governments to basically ignore or at least avoid settling the difficulties uh, of previous agreements, which is to detail their consequences for regulations and laws in those countries uh, that have con are contracted party to them. So absent th that sort of safety wall, we have to become far more detailed and prescriptive what the consequences for laws and regulations that international agreements should have. We need to negotiate much more on the basis of the actual uh, laws and regulations on the books in a country, not on broad sort of uh, textual principles that you have in international agreements. <coughs> and that's a different type of, of, of international uh, 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 negotiation culture we're looking at. Uh, and if we take away the safety walls, then we have to become far more prescriptive. We have to lock in governments in greater, de in sort of greater detail through the agreements that exist. Bill. So <clears throat> I, I'm a bit more favorably disposed towards ISDS and uh, a couple of things. First, on, on the constitutional point, maybe I'm, I'm not grasping. We have this all the time where you, if you think about trading goods, for example, or other sort of regulatory things we decide. <coughs> if you say, you know, I wonder whether the U.S. approach to foreign sales corporations um, is conforming with, with commitments that were made in the past. We don't say, well, let's take that up in U.S. courts and, or see what the U.S. administration says. There's some sort of broader body that, that – that arbitrates on this sort of come, we have a dispute settlement mechanism that does these things. I think the case is pretty clear that there is an investment component to trade that is a very important thing. This is not tangential. Um, and that you know, Marjorie gave statistics about just how linked these are, that uh, this is not a model of people just sort of shipping containers to unknown parties across the sea. Um, so then there gets to be a question of, of how does one address this? Now, I think on, on investment matters, the, the real challenge in the TTIP context is that ISDS looks slightly out of place because it's largely a measure, say, what happens if you have concerns about the other country's legal system? Um, so this is, so I'm taking as given that we, having some sort of redress is good for investors, but you could say, well, you know, the European legal system looks pretty good and so does the U.S. legal system. Axel mentioned the possibility, what happens when you're talking about Vietnam or when you're talking about Peru and Peruvians will criticize their own legal system. This is not 
casting aspersions from afar. The um, and then and the problem I think, particularly for the United States, which I'll speak to it, is precedent plays a very big role in U.S. trade policy. That we have seen and will continue to see the difficulty of moving trade agreements through Congress. Part of how this is accomplished is you keep agreements relatively consistent. People will talk about slight changes at the margin, but not sort of redoing agreements so you reopen discussions um, all at once. So I think there's two reasons then for why you'd want to include something like this. One is the sequential reason, which is you have a precedent, we do this, so fine, maybe we don't think it'll be used very frequently in USEU. And I think this is a question you raised earlier is, is this a fundamentally bad thing or is it all in how it operates? The other thing is, as Sean mentioned in his opening remarks, if we are ultimately aiming towards a sort of a grand harmonization of all this, where we get away from the ravioli and the noodles and we, uh, and we have our big lasagna, do credit, um, then, uh, <laughs> then, we, uh, then, then the, it's going to be far easier if the pieces fit together from the start as opposed to if you have a bunch of disparate rules that then need reconciliation. What, what, what about um, the hyper-national treatment aspect of this? I mean, we're giving foreign investors uh, two paths to resolve their issues, whereas U.S. investors at home have one, and vice versa. Is that not precedent-setting? Is it not problematic in some way? I think this is going to depend entirely on how this operates. That if you, it's, it's like having an appellate mechanism, for example, that you could have, you could say this gives somebody two cuts at a question, right? You had your first shot and then the second. It depends how it operates. If one is sort of an automatic overturning, then that's problematic. Yeah. If instead this is something that really looks for problematic instances and says, you know, only in those rare circumstances where something went very wrong, yeah. well, then it's much less troubling. Celeste. So I think when we're, when we're looking at first principles on this, we've never actually had any empirical data that foreign investors are systematically discriminated against before the United States, for example, has gotten into an ISDS agreement with any country. And it seems like that's the place where you start, not just, oh, people think Peruvian courts are bad. Well, if they're bad, they're bad for everyone who lives there not just the foreign investors. And so you're trying to solve a problem that we've never demonstrated exists in the first place. And I think first we need to show that that problem exists and then say, is ISDS, given what it is, the best solution for it? Or even the investment court system is now, the commission has now proposed. Because we haven't talked about that there are plenty of other options. State-to-state dispute settlement, as you settle all other trade disputes, whether it's in a trade agreement or at the WTO. There's political risk insurance. And it's not, and there is a disparity about how domestic investors are treated versus international investors, but it's also the rest of society. We have to look at how ISDS privileges one form of rights, and those are property rights, versus all other rights. So to take an extreme example, this is from a paper by Gus Van Harten, the professor, Canadian professor. If the owners of a foreign investment are tortured by a host government, right, quite extreme, those investors can use all the domestic systems at their disposal plus ISDS. If the workers of that foreign investment are tortured by their own government, they can't use ISDS. They have to go to the domestic system. So at what point have we decided that in terms of global governance, there's one right that's quite privileged and all other rights 
have to use whatever's available to them, regardless of what an inefficient system it is. It seems like everybody wants, wants to say, some, say something about this. It's a, a hot topic, but we're, we're running short on time, but I, I, I'll, I'll go to you. But put, maybe we can put it in, 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 in the context of, in the TPP, there was the tobacco carve-out. Talk about precedent setting. Tobacco is carved out from access to ISDS. What does that say about ISDS? And what does it say about the precedents that are being set for other industries getting similar discriminatory treatment? Anybody? Yeah. Go ahead, March. <clears throat> I'm so glad there's at least one other person up here who actually thinks ISDS is not the demonic, um, um, most demonic element of these negotiations. Um, look, uh, let's, let's be very clear on the fact that what we're talking about here is, again, uh, what I would describe as a relatively emotionally driven debate about what is a pretty fundamentally um, um, basic construct uh, of international law and precedent that's been in existence for 50 years. It isn't the case that a company can sue a government if their employees are tortured. There are very strict uh, 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 and narrow definitions on when ISDS, when an investor can in fact pursue the root of ISDS. It's a very limited number of, of circumstances in which contractual obligations have been violated or there's a perception of violation. It's interesting to me that in this whole conversation so far, the one thing that we haven't heard, which in fact is what's driving most of the conversation in Europe, is this notion that somehow it's corporations that are going to be writing regulations and that they're going to take away government's right to regulate. Uh, and here again, the practical reality is that if you talk about the tobacco case, I mean, I'm not going to speak to uh, the, spe the specifics of the case in, in Australia because we don't yet know the outcome. Um, but the practical reality is that somehow the notion that this mechanism will allow a company to force a change in a government's regulation is simply a misrepresentation of the facts. Susan. Uh, well, I, I think we need to, again, rephrase where we're at here. The question is, the first question is, do investors deserve protection? And, um, and then the second question is, how should that system, what should that system look like? And it seems to me that in countries where the rule of law is good, do you really need a separate legal system? And what does that do for the rule of law? For example, in the United States, obviously, we, we do have two systems, right? We have mediatory systems as well as the legal system, you know, but, and the law says that at times you have to go through the arbitration system as opposed to the legal system, for example. Okay, I won't get into the detail of that. But what we've seen, I think, is real abuse by corporations of that system. And that, I think, is what is fueling uh, discontent as well as the notion that do investors deserve this separate legal system. So let's look at that and why there was the tobacco carve-out. If you look at, for example, the Canada Eli Lilly case where um, a, you know, a government's policy space to make decisions related to intellectual property protection has been challenged by a company. The company believes its patents deserves that protection, and it has used multiple venues to try to get that straightened out. 
it seems to me we need to ask, um, does this need to be in this particular trade agreement? I want to get to your point, Phil, about precedent. Um, the precedent issue here is really interesting because the United States does include things it never included before in its trade agreements, so it evolves over time, but it also takes things out when they're not relevant. And I would say, while a trade agreement with Pakistan, you probably would want to have investor state dispute settlement. Do you really need it just for the, the reason to have the precedent in the next trade agreement for EU-US? And I think given concerns about the way that system has been used over time, we should really be asking that question. Uh, I, Dan, I'm sorry. I just got to say, I just have to real, say. Real quick, because we want to move on. Quick. I want access okay. to say something. Then. Really quickly. Let's, let's, let's back up and realize the whole conversation and the whole sort of kerfuffle in Europe over ISDS has come about in the context of one, one negotiation, and that's with the U.S. So you have to ask yourself why. Uh, you know, okay, now there's some question about, well, let's go back and look at CETA and, you know, is what's been written on paper able to be interpreted in a way that is, you know, comports with uh, uh, the sort of basic principles that are reflected in Commissioner Malmstrom's new pr pr uh, proposals. I, I think you have to step back and, and recognize that part of what's driving this is not, in fact, a rational conversation about the upsides and downsides of trade. I mean, uh, Susan, just as you could ask, why do we need it, I could say, why not have it? Because how can you pick and choose which agreements you're going to put it in? All right. Let's, let's, you, do you have any concluding remarks, Axel, on, on this topic yeah. before we pull yeah. us out again, of the weeds? Again, on, on, on precedence, because that's also, it relates to the bigger debate we have about TTIP, because that's increasingly the argument how, how policymakers are trying to sell TTIP, right? We need this in order to set a global standard, right? And uh, with regard to, uh, to, to ISDS and, um, and TTIP, a lot of attention is on China, right? We need ISDS because we are negotiating uh, these two treaties, the US and the EU with China. But we are, we are, we are forgetting that China is doing this since the late, late 1990s. Um, they include ISDS in their, in their uh, treaties. They have increasing interest in having these ISDS. Uh, um, uh, things in their treaties. And China just recently uh, um, concluded a treaty with Australia, with ISDS. And you may know that Australia is one of those countries that excluded ISDS from a treaty with the US. So I think it's a, it's, it's a, weak, it's a, it's a weak argument, this precedence argument. But this, again, relates to the whole debate we have about TTIP. We're having trouble selling TTIP on the basis of how, how, how much um, ex export will it, will it generate? How much uh, income will it generate? So we are tempted to, to, to use these ge more geopolitical arguments, China bashing arguments uh, in, in a way, to sell TTIP. So this is... Um, yeah. Well, the, the, this issue is, uh, is very prominent. I don't think we're going to resolve it here. But if you, if you want resolution, go to our website at Cato and read what Simon <laughs> and I read, and you'll be, you'll be convinced. Um, I, I want to bring us out of the weeds a little bit and talk about some of the other issues. I mean, I, obviously, we're not going to get to everything that I, that I hoped we would. But to me, these agreements, I, I find the, in these negotiations, I find the European negotiators to be on my side because they're trying to open up my market, right? So they're, they're, they, they want to get after our government procurement markets. They want to get to the sub-federal level. They, they want Jones Act reform, uh, financial services reform. Um, th these are things that, that are important uh, to U.S consumers and businesses. And so 
what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I, what are your thoughts, Phil, about uh, some some movement in those areas? Uh, is the U.S. going to uh, going to agree to some reforms on Jones Act uh, on on government procurement? Is financial services totally off the table. What uh, what, what should we expect? And would Europe uh, walk away from a deal that doesn't include reforms there? I'll, I'll let the uh, our European panelists speak to whether or not they're going to walk away. I think what you've hit on is. I think sort of the core challenge of the TTIP, which is that, as, as I sort of noted, it, it's different from most other trade agreements that you take up in that there's been so much liberalization that's taken place in the past. That's a good thing. So you have a very healthy trading relationship. That's wonderful. And I think, you know, we talked about some of the geopolitical reasons for why you would then want to have this bonding if, you, if one can pull it off. But the problem is, you know, the, 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 the areas that you just cited are the traditional highly intractable trade issues. Yes, it would be nice to change the Jones Act. Many of them on here are, are pretty intractable. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, I, I don't advise anyone to hold their breath to, until you know, the Jones Act thing is, is changed. GMOs. Um, GMOs. So that's the problem. Is it's a whole bunch of these things that have survived yeah. you know, sort of time after time where people looked for deliverables for some bilateral, yeah. and you just couldn't move on these. And I think that's what we saw with agenda setting on this right from the start when you said you know, audiovisual. With, with France. And then on the U.S., what do you do on financial regulation? That as you started, to, it was a great idea to have, to let's work on some things, but the remaining issues are really tough and it makes for a difficult negotiating dynamic because often, um, Sean was talking about whether one was in the mid-game or the late game, you know, often there is this sort of sequence where first let's tackle all these sort of traditional easy issues, we'll build confidence, we'll work together, you can note how all the progress we've made, and then when it comes right down to it, then we'll hit the hard ones. The problem is in the TTIP, you hit the hard ones right off the bat. There, there's no easy, so maybe that's why we're in the mid-game, is <laughs> because there was no beginning game. You, you get right to the difficult issues. Going to the low-hanging fruit first. Yeah, so I think, you know, yes, it would be great to tackle these things. There are entrenched political interests that are behind them, and it's why we, we haven't tackled these things. And then you're going to have a question, which is either you sort of summon the political wherewithal to overcome those, which would be really remarkable if they do, or you, well, so you summon the, the wherewithal to overcome them, you come up with something that's sort of much more modest than you first intended and declare victory, or you, you walk away. Mm. And I think those are the difficult choices before the, before the TTIP. Anybody else have any thoughts? Celeste? Um, I think the reason why some of these have, have stuck around all the time, as you've said, are they're, they're really politically intractable. But in some sense, there's a reason for that, and maybe it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the other option is to have, you know, absolutely no regulation, right, at the extreme, so that there's no conflict over what that regulation is, and anything goes. And if that's not what we're trying to set up, a sort of super regulatory council that can sort of whack-a-mole and bat down anything that is not the least trade restrictive model, um, that's where you're getting political pushback. And that's the idea that, you know, citizens want to be able to have some say in what their economy looks like. And in some senses, you know, some citizens want greater government intervention in the economy. Cato would say less government intervention in the economy. But, but these are really, really important questions. And, and it really gets to, again, I think Marjorie's question when she said, raise your hand if, if you already think TTIP is a good thing and you're for it. And I sort of went halfway up. We're in the sort of it could be camp. And I think that this, again, gets back to the question of power that we often don't want to talk about in trade negotiations. If you're already for it, 
and you don't have any idea how it's going to come out, that means you're pretty confident it's going to come out in a way that benefits your interests. And I think for working people, we're theoretically for it because we haven't yet seen one that really comes out that takes the proposals that we put in and they get put into place. So it's a really critical critical question about how confident you are that your influence and your power is going to determine the outcomes. Thank you. Uh, Marjorie, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so um, you asked the question about some of the more intractable issues. I can tell you that, like Cato, uh, the chamber actually uh, sides with the Europeans on a number of these issues. We do think that financial services should be included in the regulatory portion of the conversation. We do think uh, that uh, there is government procurement liberalization to be had, although I don't think it's purely a European offensive interest. I think it's actually a U.S. offensive interest as well. We do support the notion of um, uh, lifting the ban on crude oil exports, which is obviously one of the drivers for including an energy and raw materials chapter from the European perspective. So I think we are, we are like you, uh, interested to see liberalization occur, not just in Europe, but there are things that have to happen here as well. I would say, I just have to say very quickly, um, uh, it, I don't think Celeste was saying that this is what we're doing, which is to say advocating for uh, the elimination of all regulation, because that's not what business is advocating for. Uh, what business is advocating for is a structure that allows for dialogue among regulators to identify ways to, if where possible, and it isn't going to be possible in every instance, but where possible, to reduce the costs associated with regulation. No one in this country is any more interested in reducing uh, uh, protections for workers or consumers in the environment than they are in Europe. We have, we have the same level of concerns in this country. Uh, so, so the notion, I, I don't think you were saying this, but I just want to make it very clear that business is not saying that in the context of this negotiation, we want to use this uh, key element of regulatory cooperation as a way to simply eliminate or have a race to the bottom on regulation. Phil, Frederick, Susan. Just, just very quickly, because I want to let others have a say. So last made this point, citizens want to have a say. What I would notice on many of these issues, one of the things we do at the Chicago Council is public opinion surveys. You get strikingly strong numbers in terms of public support for trade, even when you ask very specifically about things like TPP or TTIP. Um, so I think when we look at some of these obstacles, this may not be representing sort of the citizens on the street who want to have a say. It is much more interest group politics. Yeah, no, and... and just to follow on, on, on that last point, I think that's perfectly true, and I don't think anyone should be afraid of having sort of a, a big, broad, principled debate about open trade, neither in sort of TTIP or in other contexts. But I think the point here is that when you actually look at the political economy of trade liberalization, you're not going to find many examples in world history where external liberalization or external negotiation has pushed through an enormous amount of domestic deregulation. What you will find is that external negotiations in the WTO or in other formats, they have managed to lock in existing patterns of openness to trade domestically. Every now and then, perhaps, you know, pushed countries a little bit to open up more. But trade agreements, they are broadly defined by the biggest sort of trend of political economy inside uh, each country. And 
right now and for the past years, we're simply not on a big deregulatory trend. We're on a trend where regulations at some point are increasing, but I think more importantly for trade negotiations are becoming ever more complex, ambiguous by design, that regulators have been afraid of doing regulations simple, transparent, and readily understandable for each and everyone, simply because they don't want to face up to the consequences of the full effects of regulations when, when, when it's applied. There's a good story in The Economist the other week where they were sort of making the point about how the slew of financial regulations that have emerged uh, in the post-crisis era uh, has created a lot of uncertainty in the entire financial sector. And they were quoting one financial regulator who was explaining sort of the compliance philosophy behind financial regulation was basically is we call all the banks in, we line them up, and then we shoot one of them so that the others are going to get the message. Ouch. Yeah, all right. That is not a Cato-endorsed policy. So have you know. Susan, do you? Uh, well, I, I want to make three points. Point one, um, perhaps it's worrisome, but I don't think that in the future labor will ever be happy with trade agreements because I, I don't think they're meant to really address uh, the problems of workers, which is both unfortunate and I think what we've done over time is try to come up with some fixes. So in the work that uh, Celeste and I participated in something for the ILO, and we came up with some new ideas, but they're all at the margins. They're not even really, in the end, going to change the situation. Yet I think the situation must be changed, that we need to find ways to empower workers in the global economy. Second point, um, it's interesting. what I love about TTIP and TPP is that they – well, I agree with you. The public seems more and more supportive of trade, but it's also been revealed that our legislators are ever more, I don't want to use the word protectionist because I don't know what word to use, but skeptical um, because of all this interest group pressure. Yet, I'm really hopeful as I see trade agreements evolve over time because I do think we need to find common ground on spillovers that affect people's privacy and and the quality of work and the environment, et cetera. And so the, as the process becomes, I think, more transparent, I think I see more people engaged in the debate. And I think that that is a good thing. I hope that more people will learn about the economics of the global economy, economics of inequality. Um, I think having these debates helps to get people thinking about it. That doesn't mean that the pundit class isn't, of which I'm probably one, uh, isn't involved in skewing the debate in some ways. But I still think we have more opportunities to modernize trade policy making, to make it more accountable, and that's a good thing. The more you have that feedback loop between government and the governed, that, that's a good thing. And, and what the United States does affects Europeans and vice versa, just as what China does affects South Korea. End of it. And by the way, Susan wrote a very um, thoughtful essay uh, on our uh, Cato online forum about uh, how, do you, how to address labor concerns. So I encourage you to go read those. We're just about out of time, and I don't want to be accused of having dominated the questioning. Uh, so I'm going to ask if anybody has a question from the audience. Um, Feel free to raise your hand and, and, and ask it. Um, no? Okay. 
Yeah, this woman right here, in the middle. Please identify uh, yourself and address your question and make it a question, please. Okay, my name is Li Yang. Thanks for uh, your presentation. Uh, I was wondering, in, in terms of capitalism, and uh, we are talking about free market, but currently, let's say Chamber of Commerce, they are saying we have big business, you also represent a small business. But the USA have a big corporation and have a small people. And the USA didn't really represent all people. So, so I just wonder how could the general commerce represent all the people in the global situation economy? And I just wonder if we can say regulation in a global trade, and but we cannot even have a good regulation, a good law in the United States, they can implement a good law to protect all the people. So how are we going to handle this global situation in this type of global trade agreement? Thank you. I think she was addressing you, Margaret. Yeah, so, um, hmm. so the U.S. Chamber of Commerce doesn't represent everyone. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is an advocacy organization that works on behalf of business. It happens that among our members, we have businesses of all sizes and across all sectors. We have U.S.-based, U.S. headquartered companies among our members. We have European headquartered companies among our members. We have other non-U.S. headquartered companies among our members. So I'm not entirely sure that I understood uh, the point that you were making about the chamber. The point that you were making about uh, regulation and how can we propose to uh, uh, promote better regulatory practices in an agreement like TTIP if we don't ourselves have uh, entirely effective or um, uh, adequately representative approaches to regulation in this country I think is frankly the subject for a much much longer conversation um, I, I think it's a Fair question, but I don't know that we have the opportunity to answer it here. No, I, I don't think we do. I must say, um, we are out of time. Uh, there's, I've got through about half of the questions that I wanted to ask, so I've got to do a better job of timing things in the future. But um, we're going to go to a coffee break now, and I think we're going to reconvene here at 10.30. Uh, please help me uh, in thanking the panel.